Hi there. This is Beth McNamara, the host of Murder at Ryan's Run. It's been quite a few months since we dropped our last episode, Ties That Bind, and I left you with a teaser about a season two release sometime in the future. Well, this isn't season two, but instead an important bonus episode so that I can loop you in on new information that we've acquired about the murder of John Gilbride. And just a heads up, there will be graphic descriptions of violence, so please take care while listening. I think it's around the curve here. I'm in a rental car with one of my fellow producers, Bob Helms. And we're hoping to ask somebody questions about the murder of John Gilbride. Okay. Okay. This is my first murder investigation. Knock, knock. Bob is going to stay in the car. It's just going to be me. Hi, Gary. I'm Beth McNamara. This is Gary, Alberta, Africa's husband. Hi. Hi. Um, I reached out to you a few months ago. I'm the one who's looking into John oh, Gilbride's so murder. Hot. Oh, yeah, you can't. Uh, no, the public doesn't know anything. You have to talk to the people that were involved with it. The prosecutors, the police, but you uh, the knew- newspaper reporters. But, but, but you knew John. But that we had the, the, the general public doesn't have anything to do with it. You have to talk to people that I have, were involved. Well, they're the I, only ones that know anything. But he was married to Alberta, and then you married Alberta very uh, shortly afterwards. Talk to the talk to the Carrier Post, the Burlington County Times, and the Inquirer reporters, the head photographers. Why? What would they say? Oh, you'll, they'll give you an earful. They'll tell you it didn't even happen. Gary is letting the storm door close. Oh, wait, so wait a second, Gary. You're saying that John wasn't killed? Yes, they'll tell you. The reporters—they never saw anything. They were what about you? Anything. Did you see pictures of his dead body uh, when you public, went in to talk to the police? You could ask the public. Didn't you go in to see the police? Did they show you pictures of his dead body? You could talk to the people across. You could ask anybody in the world. The only people that know about it are the. I, I have talked to cops. everybody. I want to talk to you. Oh, but we don't. The public doesn't know anything. But you know John. But that you but, you knew John. You sold him his this house. But you have to talk. You to married him. his ex-wife. Talk to the reporters. I have talked to the reporters. I want to talk to you because you know stuff, Gary. Oh my God, they are the ones that know. Gary, something. Gary, talk I, to the FBI. I, Gary. That's it. He just closed the door. Gary, I'm going to leave my card. As I walk away, I can hear Gary. He's on the phone. Who is he calling? Gary's voice was trembling. He wasn't making eye contact. And all of his responses were as if he was the, quote, general public. Gary and John were both MOVE followers at the same time. And they were friends. Gary is the stepfather of John's son. Gary married Alberta, Africa, just 57 days after John Gilbride's murder. Remember, you heard in both episode 13 and 14 how surprised MOVE members and supporters were about Alberta marrying Gary. This was what former MOVE supporter Lori Allen said. Yeah, I went to the wedding. It was weird. I don't think Alberta really loved him whatsoever, but he worshipped her. This is what former MOVE supporter Kevin Price recalled. I actually remember her saying to Rhea, like, jokingly, but with Bert, jokes are usually pretty mean. She said to Rhea, do I really have to do this? Like that. Gary and Alberta had two weddings, the legal ceremony in Maryland that was labeled a move activity, and only certain people were there. Kevin Price was there. And there were a lot of people 
who weren't supposed to know about it. I was explicitly told by Rhea not to talk about it. Wit Africa, who was born in to move, she says that they were called to a meeting at move headquarters after Gary married Alberta. Rhea was saying people going to have questions and they're going to be saying, oh, that's she's cold hearted. Then how could she just get married like that, like to another person that fast? So she was like going over like the, just in case those questions came up. Was she saying that to you and others in case somebody came questioning? Yeah, that's what it felt like to me. The media, like the news people, some people who may not understand, like some of the supporters. So that's what people were thinking 20 years ago about Gary and Alberta getting married. And remember, Gary's family wasn't invited. And to this day, Gary's family has never met Alberta. Gary seems to believe that John is not dead, not murdered, or at least that's what he's been telling himself. That was just one of the many conspiracies that his wife, Alberta Africa, and members of the MOVE organization stated to reporters and to their supporters. This is classic cult gaslighting, planting seeds of doubt, creating a false narrative, making people question their judgment and reality. And it's all used so that you're not thinking about John, the human being, who had a family, who had a life. The podcast has done all its own research. We've never had access to the case files, and our request to interview or even get a basic statement from the Burlington County Prosecutor, Scott Kofina, or the current detective on the John Gilbride murder case, Brian Cunningham, has either been denied or just ignored. Well, we're still on our own, but we have a bit of a break in our podcast investigation in the form of an official document. Yeah, I'm printing it out now. The medical examiner's report on John Gilbride. The Gilbride family has seen this report and gave their blessing for us to share it on the podcast. I'm just going to highlight what stuck out to the podcast team right away. The report is about John Joseph Gilbride Jr., age 34, but the entire report refers to him in writing, both written and typed, as John Gilbridge. John's driver's license, his car registration, his U.S. Airways employee ID would have been on him or in his car on the night he was killed. He was driving home from work. Why do they have his name wrong? The report has a synopsis in it that paints a much clearer picture of the night that John was shot. I'm going to read directly from this synopsis. Notified by Lieutenant Gubby, Maple Shade Police Department, regarding a person that was found inside of a car that had been shot. The decedent had pulled up to his apartment in a Ford LTD and was shot through the driver's side window. Investigation at the scene showed a shattered driver's side window and the decedent was leaning against the driver's door. The decedent was also wearing a seatbelt. Neighbors heard what appeared to be gunfire and called police. I'm just going to point out that at the press conference by Burlington County Prosecutor Robert Bernardi, just 13 hours after John's murder, and based on public reporting of reporters in that room, he said that a 911 call came in about bothersome headlights from John's car. This says, neighbors heard and called. Back to the synopsis. Upon arrival of PD, the decedent was found sitting in the driver's seat, engine running, headlights on, and his foot on the brake. The decedent was involved in a child custody dispute with Alberta, Africa, from Philadelphia, PA. How would Maple Shade Police on the scene be aware of the custody dispute and the name of John's ex-wife, Alberta, Africa, which isn't her legal name? 
Was there something in John's car providing this information about the custody battle in Alberta? Or was the reference to Alberta and the custody battle based on the recent headlines that included photos of MOVE headquarters boarded up, signaling a possible repeat of May 13th, 1985? Back to the report. Body at the scene was slightly cool and very early stages of rigor, as in rigor mortis, which is the medical term for the chemical changes of the body's muscles following death. Maple Shade Police arrived at 12.04, September 27th. The report lists the cause of death, homicide, and specifically gunshot wound to the head. John's body was removed from the scene and taken to Memorial Hospital of Burlington County for an autopsy. The autopsy was performed that same morning, 9.30 a.m., September 27th. The autopsy involved both external and internal examination. There were four witnesses at the autopsy done by Dr. Shaw, two detectives, one from Mapleshade Police, one from Burlington County Prosecutor's Office. There was also a medical investigator and a morgue worker. This is from the external investigation, and I'm going to warn you, it's graphic. The condition of John's body are described in the report section titled External Examination. This is the body of a completely clothed white man whose height is 77 inches, weight 166 pounds. His eyes are brown. He has his own teeth. He is unshaven, nails pale. He is completely clothed, including sneakers, socks, blue pants with belt, soaked with blood in the back, blue sweatshirt with U.S. Airways written on it, with multiple holes in the left upper arm sleeve. He was also wearing white and blue striped short sleeve shirt, which shows multiple holes on the left shoulder, left anterior chest area, right anterior chest area, and the pocket. There is a diary in the right pocket, which shattered and was covered with blood on the left lower corner. There was a hole in back pocket with hole in small pocket diary with exit wound in the front of the diary, which was sticking out. Photographs were taken. He is wearing an undershirt soaked with blood and showing multiple holes in the left upper arm, left anterior chest, and right anterior chest, and axillary area on the left side. He is also wearing boxer shorts, which are soaked with blood in the back. Photographs of all clothing were taken, and the clothing was given to Detective McDowell. X-rays were taken and showed three bullets inside the body, one in the head, and two in the chest cavity on the right side. The report then gets into detail on the gunshot wounds to the face and to the body. The one bullet that the killer aimed at John's face passed through brain tissue, causing extensive injuries and hemorrhages. John's left cerebellum and left occipital lobe were ruptured. The bullet inside John's head was given to detectives. The medical examiner's report also includes a toxicology report that is negative for any drugs or alcohol. There are diagrams noting details. There's a conclusion and a death certificate. Cause of death, gunshot wound to the head. Manner of death, homicide. This is what happened to 34-year-old John Gilbride on September 26, 2002. And John's family had never seen the medical examiner's report before now. It just brought back really hurtful feelings. Seeing his body like that. This is John's father, Jack Gilbride, now 83 and widowed for 18 years. It, it really brings back too much of the pain, to be honest with you. I thought of my wife when she first heard about it. And like my dad said, it brought back everything. This is John's youngest sister, Alicia, 
now in her mid-40s and a mother of two. I had a way that I believed things had happened. Then I read something different, so it was, that was a little bit of a shock. It was hard. I feel like it's a good thing that it's released. This is Jason Gilbride, Alicia's oldest son, who was just four years old at the time of his Uncle John's murder. It was Jason who had spoken about John's wake in a previous episode. And I looked to my left, and then there was the casket open. And I mean, I just freaked out. I wouldn't go back in. At 23, Jason can now relate to his late uncle, especially when he was reading the details of the medical examiner's report. It paints a picture of a guy, a normal guy, just coming home from work based off what the description of his clothes were. Not a bad guy, not anything they try to say about him. Just a normal guy like me and others go home and to work every day. At this point, it's been 10 months since the 14-hour podcast series was released. The story of John's murder and his experience in MOVE, and also the cultic and criminal allegations from Pixie Africa, Wit Africa, Josh Africa, Maria Africa, Rain Africa, Mario Africa, Kevin Price, Tony Allen, Lori Allen, Andino Ward, and more. The podcast has been downloaded tens of thousands of times all over the world and was featured on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And for three days on Philadelphia's most prominent progressive black radio station, WURD. So I asked the Gilbride family for an update on the investigation. Philadelphia initially wouldn't cooperate, and I don't know where that's at for sure right now. Nothing has happened. Nothing's been done. Basically a cold case in Burlington County Prosecutor's Office. The podcast didn't help as much as it should have. It seemed, from my view at least, that they kind of wanted to disassociate with the podcast and not even embrace it, rather than use it as a resource, in my opinion. Alicia specifically wants to know why John's cold case doesn't have a reward or a tip line. Over the 20 years, Alicia has seen these kind of efforts for other murder victims, but never for John. Why are we different than any other family members of murder victims that would want justice for their loved ones? I don't understand why they don't work as hard for us or for him as they do for everybody else. They just overlook him. The Berlin County Prosecutor's Office, in my eyes, is not taking it serious enough and have gone to points where I would even expect that they even might be avoiding us at certain times when we try to communicate with them, which is very unprofessional. I don't think they're doing their job very well. There's no one really on our side besides the podcast. And then select listeners, probably. As far as Brunswick County, you can't tell what side they're on. The murder of John Gilbride must be solved because the killer or killers are still out there. But the podcast also brought forth multiple victims with serious allegations of crimes that happened in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey within MOVE. And yet... We are unaware of any investigations into those allegations, and we wonder why. In recent years, authorities have successfully charged and or convicted individuals that were leaders or members of groups with criminal allegations in many ways similar to the ones shared on this podcast. Beginning in 2019 with Nexium, Keith Ranieri and three Inner Circle members were convicted and sentenced. And just last month, Lawrence Ray, known as the mastermind of the Sarah Lawrence cult, was convicted on 15 federal counts, including extortion and sex trafficking. Both of these cases were federal, with prosecutors utilizing RICO, Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act, a federal law designed and passed in 1970 to combat organized crime in the U.S., 
It allows prosecution and civil penalties for racketeering activity performed as part of an ongoing criminal enterprise. The Gilbrides are definitely frustrated, but they vow that they are never going to give up on justice for John. We're always going to keep fighting. Someone did it. Someone planned it. And those people need to be held accountable. And we will not stop till that is done. Sources have told me that Burlington County Prosecutor Scott Kofina is leaving his politically appointed post and that a new chief of detectives is also coming in because the current chief is retiring. As of now, the new prosecutor has not been named or sworn in. That is definitely something the podcast is going to keep tabs on. If you have any information that could help with John Gilbride's murder investigation or is related to the cultic or criminal allegations from MOVE followers or those born into MOVE, please reach out, email run at gmail.com or send us a written or audio message on Facebook or Instagram. Definitely subscribe so that you're alerted when we drop a new episode and we would appreciate it if you would rate and share the podcast. The more people we reach increases the odds of reaching that one witness, that needle in the haystack that could finally solve the murder and bring justice and closure for John's loved ones. Myself and the rest of the podcast team wants to thank everyone who has participated in this podcast series. We are in awe of your bravery and are honored to have earned your trust. And thanks to you, our listeners. This episode was reported, written, edited, and hosted by me, Beth McNamara. Archival research and producing by Robert Helms. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.